You're listening to the Bitcoin.com podcast, the number one place in the world to learn about Bitcoin. Open your first wallet, buy your first Satoshis, and get involved in the Bitcoin ecosystem that is changing the world as we know it. Satoshi Nakamoto, wherever you are, thank you for making all this possible. Now, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Bitcoin.com podcast. I'm your host, Bitcoin Brian. I've recently been doing some traveling over the past month uh, to places like London, Singapore, and Malaysia. And this episode was actually pre-recorded in a public space around Paddington Station in London on October 27th, 2017. So I had the pleasure to sit down with John Matonis. John, if you don't know, is one of the most influential people in the Bitcoin and blockchain space. John is an amazing person, and I enjoyed this podcast very much. We talked about his involvement as the founding director of the Bitcoin Foundation, and also why he left that role. We also discussed his past into how he got involved in Bitcoin, um, what projects he's worked on, and what he's currently working on. We also talked about some differences in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency acceptance and use between London and Japan, as opposed to the rest of the world. And I would say this is a pretty dynamic podcast, packed full of valuable information, and it was just a lot of fun to do, and I really hope that you enjoy it. Without further ado, Mr. John Matonis. All right, so welcome to London. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> London's pretty awesome so far. Um, you know, I've I've you know all, only seen things on TV, and I've kind of always wanted to come, even since I was a little kid. Yeah. And uh, you know, all of the iconic stuff, you know, the the buses and the taxis. I didn't know how comfortable it is to be in a taxi in you know in London. The compared, big ones, yeah. Com- compared to like you know <laughs> Tokyo and other places where you're kind of cramped in the seat. Here, like you know, I'm six foot four, and I can like. Stretch out and you know be super comfortable. But everybody so. takes Uber here. Yeah. Oh, do they? Because they're like a third of the price of the black cabs. So we've only been taking the black cabs. <laughs> we didn't even know about the Uber thing here. I mean, we know about Uber, but like not. Um, we didn't know that it was easily available. And actually, late last night, one of the guys we were hanging out with said, "Hey, why aren't you guys using Uber?" You know? Yeah. There's something like fifty thousand drivers really in the metropolitan area just in London. Yeah. Wow. Uber's taking over the world. Huh? <laughs> but then, but then the mayor shut them down. Really, the the mayor and the city council uh, shut them down. So they're in they're in this appeal period, which Uber can appeal it for probably five or ten years if they wanted to. So in, during the appeal process, they can still operate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're still operating. Yeah, they're not really allowed. I don't think in in Tokyo and stuff as far as really? like regular Ubers, right? But they have like the premium version, so it's actually more expensive than a regular taxi. But you also get to ride in like you know super high end cars and stuff like that's like the premium Uber or whatever. That's the only thing that seems like they're allowing in Tokyo, right? Um, because like the the taxi business in Tokyo is crazy, but it is every it's crazy everywhere, right? So I go to a lot of cities in Europe. So mm-hmm. I go to Luxembourg and Madrid and and Barcelona, and some of these cities they have completely banned Uber, mm. but they try to be um, like liberal on fintech regulations. So they say, yeah, come here, we're good with regulations on fintech. But then they, they don't allow basic things like Uber. Mm. So you can kind of judge kind their of men- it, it, right? Yeah, it, It's kind of like a litmus test for how they feel about regulation. If mm. they're going to shut off Uber, then what are they going to do for you know, uh, competitive fintech companies? Especially if they come and get grounded and set up and then all of a sudden change some stuff later. You know, it you, just you shows you how powerful the, um, uh, the regulatory barriers are with the taxi unions. Mm. You know, the, 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 the French uh, taxi people were burning cars during a protest. Really? And they were protesting because they said, 
you, we can't let the general public just get into any Uber car. It might be some maniac driving the car, not like us who are just burning cars in protest. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're not maniacs. <laughs> and I don't know, is it similar in the States? I mean, I was, I was, uh, I had a guy who always picked me up. He was my taxi cab when I lived in San Diego, California, and he always took me to the airport. I was doing a lot he was of things. He was my regular guy, and he was always on time, that kind of stuff. And he saved up like his whole life to buy one of these medallions, right? Yeah. And the medallion was now, it's like his, and it was worth all this money, and you could actually borrow against it. That's how much, how valuable it was. Mm-hmm. But with Uber coming on scene, the values of those medallions went down in a major way, right? And it almost kind of took away his, you know, life's investing into this thing. You yeah, know, well, the medallions were, uh, they, they were because of the government regulation that they had to have those medallions. Yeah. But um, uh, that's, um, it, it operated also like, um, uh, you know the the floors. Uh, you buy a seat on a stock exchange, mm. like a, you buy a, a seat on the Chicago Merck uh, for futures. You know you can you invest in that your whole life and you own the seat mm. for the exchange. But uh, just going going back to what you said about Uber for a second, um, the other thing that happened is GPS came out. So all those black uh, tabs that you get in, they spent seven years memorizing the maps. We were just talking about that last night. Because you you say a road, it'll be a little road and they'll know it in their head. Exactly. Hayden right here was just talking about that, you know, that he just mentioned an address and the guy was like, got it. And he's like, well, no, no, no. He's like, I got it, you know. And, and, you know, in Japan, it's not like that. You know, you tell people an address and you got to know a landmark and, you know, because they just don't. (laughs) They don't even have street numbers in Japan. Uh, Not really. (laughs) I mean, they have some streets, but they don't really, not so much numbers. It's like (laughs) geographical area and then like coded to a specific subject. Subset, and then you have to know the building name. It's not like a number, so it could be anywhere on right. that particular subset or something. So, but with GPS, fun. anybody can be a driver now. Exactly. You don't need to sit there and memorize a map for seven years. Yep. And every <laughs> every Japanese cab I've been in has navigation. So yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> Multiple yeah. ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, they got and they got they they even have a line into if they get confused about something they can call or whatever. But it seems here they they know everything like the back of their hand. They, so it's a, you pay for that. It's a seven-year <laughs> class that they yeah, take? Well, or? I don't know if it's a class, but it's over a, a long, multi-year period okay. to, to learn that. Mm. And um, But yeah, you pay for it in the price. Oh, in the price of the, uh, the yeah. taxi fare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. You yeah. pay for that convenience. You know, so, so black cabs are good if it's raining and you don't have any, uh, you don't, your phone's not around, you don't have a signal. You can get in, and, and you, you, know, you don't want to schedule it ahead, so you just jump in a, in a taxi, a mm. black cab. Yeah, because the Uber, you got to schedule it ahead of time. Well, you just have to punch it in on your mm-hmm. thing. Um, just the application Uber, or whatever. Yeah, Uber is great for... It's also great for uh, for women who are trying to get home late at night. Because when you get into a taxi anywhere in the world, there's only two people that know you got into that taxi. Uh, the driver and you. and you. That's it, yeah. But when, when a woman is going home late in the middle of the night, there's three people who know she got into that car. Because, for, for Uber, yeah, because it's it's because it's, it's, it's recorded, right? Yeah, yeah, it's centralized. So mm-hmm. um, that's the the negative part about Uber is the centralization. So people are working on decentralized versions of Uber, mm-hmm. which of course will require uh, decentralized payment mechanisms. Because mm-hmm. Uber has so much information on you, they yeah. know they know where you work, they know where you go home. Mm-hmm. They may not know it's your home, but they can figure it out after a while. Yeah, you, you, you keep mean, going pat- pattern recognition, place, right? Yeah. So and your work, so they know yeah. basic things about you. Mm-hmm. And they also know who you are because you're linked with your credit card. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you can, and you, have, can, you probably have even end up connecting that to your social profile, right? Log in with Facebook yeah. or something like that. So now they have you know your profile photo and probably linked to your friends list or something. But just right? think if they you didn't know. have your credit card, yeah. if it was just um, just know, Bitcoin, it was just your Bitcoin, they would still have the uh, address stuff on you, but mm-hmm. they won't be able to link it to you. In, Financial in information and you know that kind of right. stuff. So and that's a big worry, I think, about you know a lot of this um, you know kind of. 
you know, theft that's happening with credit card numbers and look at what happened with the hack breach of, you know, Equifax or and stuff recently yeah. or whatever, you know, but, but with Bitcoin, you know, there's, there's not really a hack on the Bitcoin system itself. It's just it, if some exchange doesn't have good security protocols or whatever, but right. the actual Bitcoin, you know, code has never been hacked, right? Well, right. Yeah. You don't blame, uh, if a bank fails in the Eurozone, you don't, uh, you don't blame the Euro, you know, it's, it's, it's the bank's fault. Yeah. Um, so it's the same thing with Bitcoin exchanges. You know, they can they'll come and go because they have poor security. Mm. But the, the Bitcoin protocol is still it's intact, still yeah. rocking. Yeah. Well, they have the what the uh, Bitcoin obituaries. It's already died like what is it, hundred and sixty something times. Yeah, I know. I, I always list. send ones to send new ones to that guy, but he can't yeah. even keep up now. Oh, because there's, there's, so there's many. like too many. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great site though. I think he's up to 140. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, and, he, and he tracks them all chronologically. Yeah. So you can go back to the people who said Bitcoin was dead at $325. You know? yeah. <laughs> or even a lot previous. Yeah, even before well, that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty crazy, man. Well, I mean, hey, you know, uh, I really appreciate you coming to, to talk with me about stuff. Um, mainly, I just thought that how cool would it be that, you know, I'm doing podcasting for Bitcoin.com and you happen to be in London at the time that I'm here, you know, just on a little travel and that you were available for a talk. And so I just thought we'd talk about like, you know, everything you got going on Bitcoin that you want to talk about. You what know do you I think mean? about the ICO thing? So, so ICOs, I've been, been looking at that. I follow a lot of different ones, you know. Um, I think there's some pretty interesting ones out there. I think there's a lot that are just kind of cash grabs, it looks like, you know. Um, so I understand that there's wanting to be, you know, regulatory controls more more so on what ICOs because like now it's like the Wild West or whatever kind of thing. Um, but well, can I tell you what bugs me about ICOs? Sure. Because, um, they're, they're, like you said, there's so many people who are uh, thinking it's the Wild West and they're uh, – the people who are calling for regulation – and you know more scrutiny of ICOs. They're they're really kind of uh, statists in hiding, I think, mm. because it, it, it's unlike it's pure unlicensed capitalism is what it represents. Mm. Um, and sure, there's going to be scam ones in that, just like there's scam ones in anything in, in, in capitalism. But it's going to sort itself out. Mm. And the, the the advantages that it provides are just far greater than what you get in the traditional mainstream uh, VC private equity financing world. So mm. it. Uh, it's early, early days and early steps for uh, you know, decentralizing that grip on, on funding. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, libertarians, uh, Austrian economists, they should be welcoming this. They shouldn't be the ones who are calling for regulation. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm calling for regulation, but at least I can understand that point from some, you know, things that are happening where people are just coming in, they create something, and then, you know, they get all these people to invest who don't really know what's going on. And I guess that's their but fault. But isn't that buyer it's, beware? It's, it's their fault, right, for not really paying attention to what's going on. But there is definitely a lot of uh, a lot of ICOs that are pretty interesting. Recently, I just came across this one called Block V. I don't know if you've heard of what I haven't heard of that. What do they do? But it's like it's they got this thing that they created called a VATOM or a virtual atom. And essentially what they're doing, it's for, kind of like for the future of marketing type thing. So essentially what it is is they're taking uh, like like digital products and, and making it to where that is the only one that exists. In the example of – and they actually have a demo of this. So say you look at – Like a, a painting or something. Yeah. Say you've got a billboard, right? And it's a Coca-Cola billboard, for instance, right? And there's five bottles of Coke on there. You scan the QR code and it now removes one of those bottles of Coke and puts that bottle of Coke on your phone in your inventory list, right? And then you can create any kind of product advertising to that particular bottle of Coke or you can put it on exchange and cha- you know exchange it for, hey, I don't really want this bottle of Coke, but I'd like to have that burger. So you, know, you change with the guy who wants the Coke versus the burger and you do an exchange 
page online or whatever, and then you can advertise to that or whatever, right? right. And right. then they have a way where you can like you know pinpoint and drop it on maps, so you could just put all these waypoints of all these different coupons or you know, like a crate with a key that you can unlock that gamifies this explosion of and there's only know, one of them then. and there's only one of those right? right so each one is there's only one but it gives you a reason to keep it right so say like somebody gives you an advertisement on the street or something and it says you know it's going to be you're going to give a free coke or you're going to get a coffee or you're going to get whatever but it says not redeemable for cash yeah but now you know if you don't want that you're just going to throw it away if it's that paper thing that it really has no value to you but yet if you have it in this digital world where you can go online and exchange it for something that you actually want it really kind of gives you incentive to want to go and find and kind of like a pokemon go finding these yeah. incentives of different things with the gamification kind of stuff so i don't know how far it is away from actually taking hold and stuff like that but the idea and the demo is just like phenomenal it's the guys who uh who built tether Oh, really? Uh, which huh. is like the what, seven, 16th, 17th most valuable uh, cryptocurrency, at least on coin market cap, by coin mm-hmm. market mm-hmm. cap. And uh, I guess they've been working on this thing for two years and they've dumped like between two to four million in it already, you know, and they've really kind of built it out and it's already kind of a working thing and they just had their, their token Do you know sale. what uh, jurisdiction they're in? Uh, it's, they're out of California, I believe. Hmm. So it's in the U.S. Jurisdiction. There's so many of them, you can't even keep up with them. Yeah, there's the ICO time. land. But, yeah. but what I think is interesting about the ICOs is that it could lead to the first uh, jurisdictionless uh, company. Yeah. So that you, you it's a just fundraising a where you don't, yeah, you're, you're just, you operate uh, on, on the interwebs. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> you, you have no physical uh, or, or legal jurisdiction. You're able to fundraise, mm. you're able to pay people, and you're able to operate uh, jurisdictionless. This, this is what ICOs allow. This, this is the, the future of um, DAOs. A true borderless corporation. Of decentralized autonomous uh, organizations. It's the decentralization revolution. Yeah. <laughs> Decentralize everything. <laughs> yeah. I think it's awesome, man. I mean, you know, the implications of what it has for just everything on the globe, you know, from even voting systems. I mean, there's all this different stuff that you can use blockchain technology for. Um, but a lot of it, it all started off with finance, right? Like with Bitcoin and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's where your roots are, right? Is in the, in the financial sector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all the stuff you've been, you know, in, in the past. And that's how you got involved with Bitcoin in the beginning was because of your, your background in finance and stuff like that. Yeah, I was the foreign exchange trader for Visa. So I was the one okay. who put in that exchange rate on your uh, credit card statement whenever you travel overseas. Okay. So that was that was a fun job. That was like that was legalized theft. <laughs> but at Visa, they called it uh, just taking the sweat off the pipes. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit of. So every morning I would go into the office and I'd have to enter you know 158 different rates in to the system uh, to clear mm. and uh, turn that into a profit center for Visa because they used to pass it through at cost, and then Visa started uh, you know managing the rates and taking positions and. Uh, that, that is how I got interested in digital currency because at that time Visa had a plan to actually launch um, a digital currency of their own. Really, it was a, you know something in the in the strategic um, planning division for five years. It never actually came to fruition, and they never actually launched it, uh, mainly because of the lawyers stopped them. Really? Uh, but they were planning on issuing a, a Visa currency into countries that didn't have a stable enough currency for them to operate a payment system. Oh, okay. So then, you know, this is like in the in the mid '90s when when digital cash was uh, just starting to come out with uh, David Chom's uh, DigiCash protocol. Okay. Um, and, and so that was you know that was the beginning of digital cash protocols. Um, Visa was was trying to get into it in their own way. Um, not so much in a digital cash way, but it would have been in a non-governmental way and uh, just pulled back at the last minute 
on that. But from, from my perspective, it allowed me to start a digital currency blog, which I did, mm. uh, pre-Bitcoin. And then, uh, you know, eventually, a couple of years later, uh, received a few emails from Satoshi Nakamoto, who's mm. promoting the, the Bitcoin system and encouraging me to get into mining. Uh, and that was back in 2010? Early 2010, yeah. Okay. So, and then I did not, uh, I got into mining a little bit. Okay. Uh, but even then, on, on desktop computers like this one, um, would still, you know, slow things down enough to where you would kind of go back and forth on, on mining and not mining. Oh, because you have to do your other computations you're doing for whatever you're on the internet even or then, yeah. the file or right. whatever else. Right. Okay. Because that, yeah. that was 2010. So, you know, now forget it on... on uh, Regular CPUs oh, and GPUs, not happen, and the right? whole thing's gone into ASICs. With the ASIC miners yeah. and the power that they consume, and the type of you know computations that they could do at the rate that they can do them, it's 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 pointless to try to do it from your home computer. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's something that um, you know Bitcoin Gold, the most recent fork that doesn't seem like anybody knows much about, was kind of trying to do was get put it something into the code where you wouldn't be able to use an ASIC miner. Or something like that. Do you know? No, I, I know. I know. Or? I know Jack behind uh, Bitcoin Gold as well. But, okay. Um, I, you know, I don't. I don't uh, think it's going to survive. Yeah. Um, you know, it hasn't been available to us yet. Because yeah. It's I mean, still, no, it's, nobody's been able to look at it, right? Well, but the, um, the funds are going to developers right now. <laughs> okay. That's what. That, that's how it's being released. Um, but when it's available to sell, it'll probably be much lower price than we see it now. Is that what the whole pre-mined coins is about? Is is to pay? For development, or well, not not everybody. Just this is just the way that Bitcoin Gold decided to do it. Okay, I don't think it's going to be. Uh, it, it's not going to be a meaningful survivor. Um, but then they also announced Bitcoin Silver now too. Really, you heard about Bitcoin Silver? I've heard of Bit Gold, like like actual, you know, having um, a cryptocurrency that is essentially tied to the value of gold. No, but that's not that's not a fork. But, but that's not a fork. fork. Yeah, that was just a different idea. Yeah, right? Bitcoin Silver is another fork. We're talking about forking. Everybody's really. now, yeah. asking, you know, instead of starting an altcoin from scratch, it's better to just fork and because do, then you have the user base of you do know, an airdrop on existing right? Bitcoin holders mm. who then have to keep moving private keys to different wallets. <laughs> It's crazy. So it's teaching these these uh, new coin airdrops are teaching uh, people a lot about private key management, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I get a lot of people that hit me up all the time. You know, I've been talking about Bitcoin for years. And mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, I haven't been into it as long as you have. But in my local area, I was kind of one of the only people that was talking about Bitcoin in Yokosuka, Japan. And, uh, you know, being that I, ha I got a Bitcoin ATM in my store just to kind of, you know, give people a place where they could actually get it easily. Because that's been, you know, one of the biggest things beyond education and understanding Bitcoin is being able to obtain some. Um, especially a couple of years ago, it's becoming easier now that more people are, uh, you know, creating these programs that make it easier for people to obtain Bitcoin. But, you know, I've been talking to people about Bitcoin for a while. And, you know, one of the biggest questions on that is, is you know, like, w what do I do with these forks? Like, Brian, tell me what to do. I don't know, you know, what am I supposed to do? Can I, am I okay to stay in my Coinbase account? Am I okay to, you know, whatever? And, and you know, that's when you really have to teach people about private key management. You know? yeah, exactly. If you, if and you and they're going to mess up. So they're going to mess, mess up, up. right? And, they, and you have the possibility to lose your Bitcoin because if you don't control your private keys, you don't actually control your Bitcoin. But it's, you know? it is an important lesson to learn. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and some people have actually lost Bitcoin because of this, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, things with, um, you know, different exchanges in China, okay, coin, you know, some mm -hmm. people lost some money there and... Um, so it's, it's a big deal, right? So in China or in, in Japan, I mean, uh, are there a lot more merchants accepting Bitcoin? Because we yeah. hear about so much of it in the news here of, of you know, like these big electronic stores that are accepting it. Yeah. You, have, you just licensed 11 exchanges in one day. Yeah. So actually there was, I think there was over 50 applicants to, to this uh, Japanese government issued license for cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And uh, they approved 11 of them. 
And so, 11 out of 50. 11 out of 50, it looks like, yeah. And, and there's a So the other guys are going to be unlicensed. <laughs> well, yeah. Still operating. Actually, what's interesting about that, the, the BMX ATM that I had in my store, those guys are, are really just an exchange. Their main focus is their exchange services. Yeah. And ATMs was just a very small part of what they were doing. So because they huh. didn't get their license, they decided to pull all the ATMs until they could focus on you know, the regulatory uh, steps that they had to take for the Japanese government to you know, appease them enough to be able to get the license. So they're allowed to apply again. So they've actually pulled all of their ATMs that were in circulation around Japan. They're focusing on their exchange and their KYC and AML, you know, uh, requirements that the Japanese government is, is having them yeah. be required. Um, you know, the process that you have to take for that is, is, you know, you go online, you submit your you know, identification, you give them your address, your phone number, that kind of stuff. Um, but the final aspect of after they verify that is they need to send you via snail mail an actual card to your address that you have to receive. And then once that's done, then you're completed through the Japanese government's regulations, their requirements for being able to to sign on for an account for an exchange to be able to buy. So then it's only for people. domestic citizens then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's a foreigner only, can't open an account. Then. I'm a foreigner living there and I can, but, I, but, but you're a resident. But because I'm a yeah. resident of the country, right? right? So as a resident, you can. But if you're like, 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 say, the U.S. military guys out there or whatever, they wouldn't be able to, you know. Know, get an account unless they were married to a Japanese and hmm. you know, did it through their wife or something like that. Um, but most of the guys that are on the base, you know, they're just they're there for a few years. They wouldn't be able to actually sign on with the yeah. Japanese exchange because they don't even have a Japanese address. Their address is a USP, you know, FPOAP, you know, address right. on the ship. I, right? I, I think those ATMs that you're talking about are great for awareness, though. Mm, so if, when an exchange does that, mm. um, they they have their exchange logo on the ATM. Exactly. Um, we should start calling them BTMs, though. BTMs. That's that's true. Because, yeah. Because ATMs make it something sounds like something that should be regulated. It's really right. just like a Snickers <laughs> machine. It's, yeah. It's a candy bar <laughs> vending machine. So it, it doesn't need to be regulated. Yeah, you know, uh, you're buying a, you're buying a, a, a you know an invisible math puzzle. That's true. So it's well, why do you need regulation? Well, you know, um, I, I think that there's just all this worry from governments about you know this th- what they say at least <laughs> about this you know money laundering thing. If I would say I was a criminal. And this is their, their, their argument, right, is that uh, say I'm a criminal and I'm you know, doing criminal activity, I'm selling drugs, I'm doing whatever, and I'm getting a lot of cash. I could just go up to any ATM and change that all into Bitcoin, and then I can send that Bitcoin anywhere in the world that I want. And now, you know, that... Well, no, I, I mean, I know that's not going to attack. That's kind of their, it's their argument, right? vending but, machine. You could put the private key inside the Snickers wrapper or something and mm-hmm. just sell it that way. It's a candy bar machine. <laughs> and buy them in, you know, certain increments of... of uh, then they would regulate like candy bar machines. Yeah. That's, well, you know, government's got to get their tax money, right? <laughs> and if they don't have their tax revenue, then they're hurting and they're not able to wage war and stuff. So, uh, But that's probably a whole deeper subject. Yeah, it's a whole different podcast. Yeah. Um, so, so, okay, so, you know, you've, you've been around um, Bitcoin for a very long time, had early emails with Satoshi Nakamoto. You've been, you know, the executive board member, right, of the Bitcoin Foundation. Well, yeah, um, the, the Bitcoin Foundation started in, in the fall of 2012. Okay. And what a lot of people don't uh, realize or remember about the, the foundation is that it, it was, you know, the first major nonprofit trade association for Bitcoin. Mm. Um, and it, and we originally uh, started it to compensate the core developers because they were volunteers and, and they had pressures to get other jobs and not work on Bitcoin. So the, the original uh, intention of the Bitcoin Foundation was to make sure that we were compensating the, the core developers, mm. um, the ones that needed it and requested it. Mm. And in exchange for that, we asked for, um, uh, you know, we, we asked for a signed attribution 
uh, of, of what their other funding sources were. Mm. Because at the time, there was a concern that the core developers may be being funded by other other state malicious actors or, actors yeah, or malicious people. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so we wanted to know other funding sources for core developers if we were also going to be compensating them uh, through the foundation. Mm. So that's what the original intention was. Um, the, the foundation has morphed so much over, over the years. Um, and in retrospect, I think one of the problems for that is that it uh, allowed for voting uh, of, of the board members. Um, it's on its surface, voting for board members sounds like a reasonable thing to do. But during the process of something like that, especially for a nonprofit, it starts to change the ethos of, of what the original foundation was intended to do um, or, or what its objectives are. And I'll give you an example, uh, because if, if, if I was to do something like this again, I wouldn't make it subject to voting. It would be uh, similar to the board of directors for the, the opera or the ballet. They don't sit there and have elections for who's going to be on the board of the opera. They go out there and they appoint people who will promote the opera because they're known people and they're going to be leveraging the reputation of the person they appoint. And that'll be good for the opera. If they were to turn it all, turn the voting uh, for the board of the opera just over to general membership, there could be people in there who say, well, yeah, we want rock and roll people there or you know, we, we want different people on the board. And it'll start to change over time. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's kind of what happened uh, to the Bitcoin Foundation uh, because it rotated people in and out. The original ethos of the foundation was, was changing along with the, uh, the guiding board members. And I don't think that's the best structure for uh, for, for a nonprofit. Hence your forward. exit from the foundation. Yeah, well, part of that was because uh, of the way that I thought it was going. I originally, you know, by the third year of the Bitcoin Foundation, um, I thought that it should be focusing <clears throat> almost exclusively on defending uh, individuals and companies from uh, overreaching legislation. So similar to what the EFF does with a lot of the pro bono legal work, okay. the, the Bitcoin Foundation would be a great way um, <clears throat> to provide that, that pro bono uh, legal defense mm. for people who are going to jail now for, for doing exchanges or doing local Bitcoins. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, and, and that's crazy. And I've seen stories where these, uh, like FBI agents or somebody is like setting up a sting to, you know, buy Bitcoin from local bitcoins.com from somebody. And there was a case just recently in Florida or something where, you know, this agent had set this person up to meet them in person. They sold them some Bitcoin. Then they arrested them on the spot for not having a, right. a money exchange license or something like that. Exactly. Like that was, that's a great case. Know. That would be you a know. great case to take. Yeah. Um, you know, pro bono work because it seems like complete entrapment is something that the person didn't even realize that they probably needed to have, and why did they need to have this for Bitcoin when it's not, you know, a recognized currency at, at all or whatever? And that, that was the U.S. You're talking about in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was think, like in Florida. There's a bunch of cases I think all over, but a lot of them have been in the U.S. where they're setting people up to. to yeah, well, in Bangladesh, them. they were just going to jail. Yeah, just they're just up. doing a transaction. Wow. So there, there's a lot more cases than just the ones in the U.S. Sure, and, sure. And so I couldn't get the buy-in, total buy-in on the board to be able to steer it in that direction. Mm -hmm. So uh, when, when you know, my uh, board seat expired, I decided not to run for re-election mm -hmm. and, and moved into, you know, the, the for-profit world. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the for-profit world. For-profit world. That, yeah, what, what do you got going on right so, now? I mean, it looks like you're doing some pretty interesting stuff in, you know, you had your background in, in, in finance, which, you know, led to probably, I guess, into what you're doing now as far as this trade. It seems like you have a trading 
platform? Did you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I do. I, I saw the story I, on I Medium that you posted, right? So if anybody's listening to this, they can go to the Medium source. We'll end up posting the link. But there's a, a, a story on there that kind of outlines some of the, the You're talking about, about the, the Globotex exchange. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, so since leaving the Bitcoin Foundation, I've been focusing my efforts mainly on um, helping Bitcoin and blockchain startups mm. uh, in the strategic planning, uh, fundraising, uh, and that usually involves taking uh, an independent uh, board director seat. So I've been a non-executive board director for about six or seven companies operating in the space. Okay. Um, and one of them is uh, Globotex, which uh, I met the founders, the co-founders, immediately after leaving uh, Bitcoin Foundation. Mm. Um, and what I liked about the approach and what I liked about their plan was that they were building an exchange that was something that you would see in you know, the real institutional trading world. It wasn't like an exchange that was for, you know, trading, uh, trading cards, game cards, or, or coming from some other angle where it was very cartoony. This was a real exchange that was uh, geared towards institutional trading. Mm. So it implemented the FIX protocol, which allows for, um, <clears throat> allows for a number of things, but mostly automated uh, API-based trading, which institutions want. Um, you know, <clears throat> uh, very detailed reporting on trades, which... A lot of exchanges have now, but you know, two years ago they didn't have it. Mm. Um, and the also the vision to progress that to a derivatives exchange, so that you actually can have a future currency futures that will be similar to the currency futures that you see in British pounds or yen or euro. Any fiat, really? In, in, yeah. the, in the in the on the Chicago Merck, mm. with the same calendar months. So you know, March, June, September, December expiration. This allows companies that hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet to practice uh, risk management and, and hedge their exposure. Because right now, if you're a Bitcoin company and, you're, and you want to hold Bitcoin on your balance sheet, yeah. you have a lot of exposure. And that exposure is sometimes uh, unacceptable to uh, you know, other people who are involved in the business. Or because of some the, of the ma- other massive ones. volatility. Yeah, yeah, because of the volatility. Yeah. You know? yeah. so, uh, so futures, uh, currency futures are a natural uh, risk management hedge. For that, mm-hmm. uh, the futures market will also then lead to the options market, um, and in, in my opinion, um, margin trading that we're seeing now on exchanges uh, such as Bitfinex, mm-hmm. you know, that's creating a 24-hour uh, two-way market for Bitcoin interest rate. Mm-hmm. So you can actually determine the Bitcoin interest rate, which we haven't been able to do mm-hmm. in the early days. So do you know what? Take a guess at what you think the Bitcoin annual interest rate is just like uh like libor you know libor is what like four or five percent this is this is bybor or bybor yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah so it's 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 bybor uh, uh, i i wouldn't know i mean you know probably just take a guess 20 percent yeah you're close yeah, yeah it's 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 usually around 28 to 35 percent okay on an annual basis okay and this is uh by you get this by taking the daily overnight mm-hmm. lending rate and you have to annualize it because there's not really a monthly or an annual uh, interest rate market. For Being anybody. able to project that out, right? Or just annualize it like you would roll it over every day. Yeah. So if you roll it over every day, yeah, then it would be what you said around mm-hmm. 28 to 35 percent. Okay. Um, the uh, the spikes have been up to as high as 300 mm. percent. Yeah, the spikes have been because insane. but but those those would yeah. only last for a few weeks. Yeah. There's, and, and then there's it levels a big off. need for a bar, and then it goes back. So yeah. you really won't get that on an annual. Mm. Uh, basis because it just doesn't last that long. It, it'll last for a few weeks, but it's it's incredible to watch that because it shows the demand for uh, borrowing and lending Bitcoin mm. on a twenty four hour 
continuous market. 365. Yeah. doesn't matter. It's a holiday, weekend, whatever. I mean, trading's going down. And this, this yeah. becomes the, the – that <clears throat> over time will become a reference interest rate. Mm. So if you pull that rate from different exchanges that are doing margin trading or P2P lending, mm. you can come up with uh, a reference rate, mm. which is exactly what LIBOR is. Mm. So if you call it uh, something like BIBOR, Bibor. which Bitcoin interbroker offered rate mm. – is, is what I came up with for the... the yeah, I saw that, uh, something in that in... Uh, it was Cointelegraph, right? That, yeah. That had that story about you. It was, um, it, was a, it was a while ago, right? It was, yeah, it was over two years two, ago. 2015, I think, is I remember seeing that. So, yeah. And, uh, but, but the reality is we are starting capital markets. We're starting a capital market from scratch. So you're going to have uh, borrowing and lending in that. Mm. There, there, there's, there's no, you know... There's no if ends, buts about it. If we're if we're building a new capital market structure from scratch, mm. and that's what that's what Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are, you're going to need that um, liquidity even in the interest rate market for mm. it, and that's not a bad thing. Mm. Yeah, we'll, I mean, lending is is a financial institution's primary um, mission, right? I mean, that's what that's, that's, exactly the the interest rate should reflect. Uh, you know, the risk based lending. It mm. shouldn't. It shouldn't reflect the. Monetary policy and manipulations of a, of a central bank monetary authority. Mm. So th- we're getting back to basics on, on lending, and you know the reason you're seeing it start on these exchanges instead of uh, in other areas is because to short Bitcoin you have to borrow Bitcoin. Mm. So at first you have to borrow Bitcoin. Unless you're Satoshi Nakamoto, you've well, got plenty. <laughs> <laughs> That's more of a straight sell. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you, you, know, you borrow it just like you would in the equities market. Yeah. And then you short it. And then you pay it back at a lower price. So that's why you're seeing it active first on the on the margin exchanges, and and Bitfinex has the the greatest volume on that. Mm. You can go to check out the uh, interest rate at, at bfxdata.com, and you can see that you know in action. So what what is Globotex you know doing right now that's going to be groundbreaking in in what, oh, the, Globotex, next, what the next step is going to be? You know? Globotex intends to create that reference rate okay. by aggregating it okay. and then trade it as an interest rate futures contract. And then so make that be, available too. You'll be able to trade the Bitcoin interest rate. Okay. Exactly. And what's the roadmap for that? Is what's the, the projected availability well, to we we're we're in the uh, we're currently in the pre-sales period for the ICO. Okay. The official ICO launches on November eighth. November eighth. Okay. And so good timing for the podcast. Yeah, great timing for the podcast. <laughs> it'll, it'll run through to um, early December, December seventh, I think. Okay. But compared to other competitors that are out there, uh, especially exchange related ICOs. Um, you know, we've already raised um, 1 million euro in, before this. Mm. So going back a year to build the platform and to build out the structure, um, we have a working product. So it's not a case of where we need the ICO money to build the product. Mm. The, the product is already built. You can go log online at, at Globotex.com and, um, and and you can currently trade Bitcoin. So there's no worry about what some people have like with these cash grabs and stuff like that. This is something that's been being worked on. You have a viable product. You've already raised the capital, and this well, is exactly. Just, it takes this out. Is, this is to take, to take it to the next. This level, is take it exactly. This is to okay. take it global, okay. which is Globotex. Yeah, right. Name. Take it to the next level. If it's not in, global. In, then they got to change the name, right? In, in terms of uh, uh, you know, in terms of leverage trading yeah. with with derivatives and also with with interest rates, interest rate futures market. Okay. Um, and and. It, the other thing that I want to add, uh, this is new news, is that we're uh, we're, we're fairly close to announcing um, uh, uh, approval on uh, EMI, which is uh, in in the eurozone. It's uh, electronic uh, uh, electronic money issuer license. Okay. So we we'd be close to announcing that. Um, oh, interesting. 
uh, prior to um, prior to the uh, ICO. Uh, okay. So prior, prior, to, prior, November prior to November eighth. Okay. Um, and what I will tell you about that is the interesting thing that that potentially allows is for an exchange to have uh, the ability to create its own IBAN numbers. Okay. So the the IBAN numbers are what you need within the the SEPA payment system here mm. in Europe. Mm. Um, and that's been the trouble for a lot of exchanges is where they lose their bank account, they're not able to they're not able to operate in converting with uh, fiat. So uh, within within a year, I would say, uh, Globotex would have the capability of uh, producing, uh, creating, and managing its own list of IBANs. Wow! So no bank account would be able to be shut down. That's awesome because I know actually. I mean, I've, I'm connected with a lot of people that have a lot of Bitcoin and and um, you know, do some pretty big transactions in Bitcoin. And banks have shut them down, you know, for transactions because of the large volume and they don't understand Bitcoin right. or decent. Well, they just don't want the risk. Yeah, of it's, the, it's too risky for them. Right? Yeah, for risk versus reward, and and that's the bank's prerogative. I don't take that away from them. I don't mm-hmm. think that banks should be forced to bank anyone. They shouldn't be. Yeah, but if, but that's what opens the door for other people who are willing to take on that risk, and because they understand it in a better or different way, right. that they can. You know, provide that surface when other people weren't able to do that. You're seeing the smaller, nimbler banks actually get into the business, mm-hmm. and those are the ones who are who are uh, supporting the exchanges right now because they need to survive, and for them to survive, they need to adapt to the current world and not, you know, be entrenched like the, uh, they, the dinosaurs kind of. Right? They, they want to make it. They want to make a name for themselves, right? Yeah, um, exactly. and they, they see what's coming, right? So, I mean, it's it's. I think it's it's no doubt that this is you know it's a game changer. It's it's already changed the world. It's going to change the world a lot more going forward. You know, and um, as far as Bitcoin, you were saying that you know you're, you're involved with Globotex, right? But you have these other uh, companies that you're involved with. Is there any other things interesting about? I I, I, I want to mention another or? sector of, okay. of the Bitcoin economy okay. because there's there's three guaranteed uh, ways to to have a revenue producing a, a Bitcoin company, okay. almost guaranteed. Okay, and and one of them is uh, of course mining. Mm. You have a big capital investment, but you have predictable revenue stream. Mm. So mining is a predictable. Uh, business. Um, <clears throat> the other one is exchanges because you, you make money in up or down markets. Mm. Exchanges uh, thrive on volume, so they don't really care if the price direction is, is up or down. Mm. They just want volume. And that's why exactly. you see so many exchanges adding other uh, currency pairs, mm. um, other tokens, because they, they just want the volume. The third area that is consistent, reliable, predictable revenue is Bitcoin online gambling. Mm. Yeah, sports books, casinos. Sport books, casinos like I mean, that, this right? this is where new innovation typically starts, um, and and it's true with Bitcoin as well. So, just like you said, the large institutions, the large mainstream gaming companies who are in the top five, top ten for online online poker and everything, they 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 already have too many worries with what they're doing with fiat and their. They're making a lot of money with fiat, so they don't see the demand for getting into into crypto and crypto gaming. Mm. It's the smaller middle tier or the upstarts that are making a name for themselves by getting by challenging the mainstream casinos. Let me fill this void and Bitcoin in, Bitcoin on. out. Mm. So they don't even need a bank. They don't have to because all they're doing is just you know transferring it, and they can do it from anywhere in the world, and so they don't even need to have any sort of license, right? Right. They don't have to go to 
if they're operating or setting up in some country and have to worry about that country's government and what their rules and regulations will be on them. They just do everything on a global scale and anybody can get involved because anybody can use Bitcoin in and Bitcoin out. Exactly. And you, their only drawback is using their local exchange to turn it back into fiat if they need to, right? Well, and, and that, that's the interesting point. Because, and it's not, the, it's not the black market they're getting into. It's mm. the unregulated gaming market, which mm. is a gray market. Mm. It means that the country uh, jurisdiction there has not even defined... Uh, uh, or outlined any way for gaming companies to operate in that country. So it's undefined. Mm-hmm. It's not illegal, but it's also not stated as legal. And and in those unregulated markets, Bitcoin is great because mm-hmm. you don't have the risk of the payment institution. Mm-hmm. You just have, you know, you have to uh, manage your own balance sheet, like you say, because you're getting your uh, commissions and your revenue in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so so um, a lot of those Bitcoin gaming companies... Uh, and, and including the one I'm involved with, uh, they never had to raise outside venture capital because they were nearly profitable from the very beginning because of the cash flow. I mean, the, the, uh, some of the board meetings on these companies are like, you know, what the F do we do with all this Bitcoin? Mm. That, that, that's yeah, their concern is hedging. Yeah, hedging that risk. And, and, and in, a, in a normal mainstream casino that has all that cash, mm. like, uh, like B-Win or, or uh, William Hill or, or Party Gaming when it, before it merged with B-Win, mm. you know, they would take that cash and they would invest it in, in uh, treasuries, mm. you know, overnight government bonds. Mm. Um, and they would earn a yield on that because that's uh, you know, customer money that is either sitting there or it's their own money that they want to earn a yield on. And then sort of protected in that system without really any risk, right? Right. Now, what do you do if you're a Bitcoin casino mm. and you're holding Bitcoin? Mm. How, do you, how do you earn a yield on that? Talk to Global Tax. <laughs> <laughs> or First Global Credit. Yeah. First Global Credit is doing that as well. So, you, okay. you know, you, um, you have to look. It, it's a whole different way of looking at it. It's yeah. a new capital market structure. Right. And um, also, a lot of people don't realize that when PayPal went uh, public in, in the early part of this uh, century, mm. um, their seventy percent of their volume was from gaming and adult entertainment. Really? And you know, people are always saying, "Well, look, it's just adult entertainment and gambling," you know. But that's where it starts, and then it, it slowly evolves into other usage areas, and then it becomes mainstream. It but happened the, with but PayPal. The, but the initial funding of it is is coming from those sectors. Right? Those, those industries are, are willing to try that. They're willing to try something new because they want to do this thing, right? Yep. It's, their, it's, their, it's their focus in the in the very beginning and stuff. And uh, you know, I, I got friends that operate in Bitcoin and sometimes sell Bitcoin for you know cash and stuff like that because they're in investments that yield them Bitcoin and they need to mm-hmm. have some cash for doing whatever you know because maybe they don't have you know the Zappo or the Wirex or something like that to be able to utilize so uh, and some people's you know for accepting rent payments and stuff they won't take credit right so you need to have that cash in some kind of way and they're not accepting Bitcoin yet so yeah um, but you know they use uh, you know PayPal is kind of a medium of exchange for that where somebody will send them money in PayPal and then they'll give them the Bitcoin kind of thing and, and PayPal is shutting people down they're freezing accounts I mean I got a friend who just had a, a $50,000 worth of uh, fiat in, in in his account that got frozen because he was selling Bitcoin Without well, it's in PayPal's terms. It's in their terms and conditions. Yeah. But right? that'll be frozen for six to twelve months at least. Well, it, yeah, yeah it's, I guess so. It's so. it's it's the risk of uh, that's why you know uh, with, their, with all that stuff. So so there was like you know pretty uh, maybe people would consider mischievous in the beginning with the adult entertainment and all that kind of stuff. But now they have the rules and regulations. You can't do Bitcoin. You can't do vapor e-cigarette products. You can't do you know tobacco <laughs> or you know that kind of stuff. I, maybe you can do alcohol or generic pharmaceuticals. Or generic pharmaceuticals, <laughs> right? Because of the regulation of the industry, and that all comes from what government pressure and stuff like yeah, that where yeah. you know and, and bitcoin is is allowing people to you know have, have mediums of exchange where you can do these other type of products without having to worry about being shut down 
Well, and right. uh, exactly. You, you, and with with uh, a Bitcoin gaming company or a casino, uh, they can't be shut down because they're, um, they're, the way to shut them down typically is to go after the banks. Mm. So if they're not using a traditional bank or having a bank footprint in, in a jurisdiction, then you know they, they really can't be shut down. Mm. Um, th- but the other interesting thing about the, the gaming companies is this uh, notion of provably fair gaming. Have you heard of provably fair gaming? No. It, it, it doesn't have anything to do with Bitcoin as a payment. It has to do with um, cryptographically ensuring that you're getting a fair a roll or a fair shuffle, a fair deal, fair roulette wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the things that people worry about with online casinos because you're always like, well, how do I know that it's a fair shuffle and I'm really playing blackjack with yeah. the right deck? Well, right. this could be a totally fixed system and I wouldn't know it. Crypto yeah. solves that yeah. with provably fair um, with provably fair gaming and the cryptographic protocols that allow you to do that. Mm. Um, Satoshi Dice had it. Um, so you can you can uh, now run a gaming company, and you don't need to have it have that seal of approval from the external third party auditor that we've seen in the mainstream world. But mainly, it's ECOGRA. ECOGRA is the body, the licensing body, or the auditing body that goes into the fiat casino mm. online world. Mm. And they give their stamp of approval that, yeah, there's a correct random number generator and you know, everything's correct on this and it's a fair shuffle. Mm. But you still have to have that third-party little sticker from eCogra. Mm. Now, in Bitcoin casinos, um, you don't you're, you're typically not going to have that because mm. you're not going to be in that world where you're, where you're going to seek that third-party license. But mm. you can, you, through provably fair gaming, mm. you can still prove. So how do you implement? It's actually pro- better. How do you implement the provably fair gaming? You there, there's a number of uh, there's a number of white papers. There's a it's number like of open source. Papers. It's, all it, it's okay. open source. Okay. It, it, it's protocols that um, uh, allow you to verify things, uh, verify randomness, um, and then it's uh, then the hashes of that are also uh, typically posted uh, on the blockchain. Mm. You can post it on blockchain as well. Pretty interesting, man. It's, you know, every day I'm learning something new about how blockchain is being implemented for changing different things in different industries. So it's more trustworthy so, again. Yeah, though. it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I think before you were talking about this, this gray zone and it kind of you know brought me to a thought that because I, I deal in, um, in sometimes in ATMs in Japan or let's call it BTMs. Right? BTMs, it's, yeah. It's the, yeah. It's the more proper term to use for a Bitcoin uh, teller machine. And so, uh, there, it's kind of in that gray zone right now, right? There's no regulatory information from the Japanese government that says you can or cannot have a, a BTM. Have any right? been shut down? And, and no, nothing's, okay. nothing's been shut down. So as of right now, if somebody was operating one, if there was one available, you know, you wouldn't have to put any KYC AML information into it or anything like that. And you can just buy and sell Bitcoin for the machine if it's a buy sell machine. Um, but the plan is to actually, from what I understand, being you know close to a lot of people that deal in, in BTMs in Japan, is that the the Japanese government is going to require probably in the future, in the next six to eighteen months, they're going to require it to have the same regulations, um, the same requirements as the exchanges do, and they're even talking about having it possible. A possibly where if say you had a coin check account which is a Japanese yeah. exchange that you can you, that's licensed you know or Bitflyer which is another Japanese exchange that's licensed those are probably the two biggest ones in Japan if you have an account with them there's going to be some thing coming from the government saying if you have that account you can input that account into a BTM 
and then you can buy from that BTM based on your your already established like account through the since, bank it, net. since it's already done right yeah. you've already you've already met the the uh, regulatory requirements for you know the Japanese government regulations so through the exchange that you're using so now you can just use the the code from that or the uh, I don't know the email from that or something that that shows that you actually have well they just account. turn all the regular ATMs into yeah. BTMs yeah then. right <laughs> if, it's, if they can connect it that way yeah but I think that you know what's cool about you know what the Japanese government is doing and, and not I mean I obviously don't agree with everything they're doing right but they are actually kind of taking the charge on you know how governments can get you know a little bit more comfortable implementing blockchain technology and 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 you know different cryptocurrency because it's not just bitcoin you know it, it goes for ethereum and you know uh dash and monero and all these other all these other mm-hmm. ones are pretty much you know is all those even though bitcoin's the biggest one and you mentioned before about you know these big companies in japan um like a uh, bit camera which is probably the biggest electronic store in japan yeah they got locations everywhere it's a huge store it's uh, big on bitcoin too. everybody knows and, and they've started accepting bitcoin there and it's through bitflyer i believe right which mm. is the one of the biggest exchanges there so it's who's accepting payments but you only can do um roughly about a thousand u.s or less per transaction. It's actually 100,000 yen, which is about 9,000 US But you can do it right at the checkout. But it doesn't, doesn't have to checkout. be online or anything? No, you can you can do it at checkout, yeah. And so there's another store that's kind of connected to them called Kojima, which is another big electronic store, yeah. appliances, you know, refrigerators, and you know all that kind of stuff. And uh, and they're they're accepting Bitcoin. But I went into one, and even though corporately they're accept, they're, they have the mandate to accept Bitcoin at the store, that store didn't have any education into it because it was so new at the time. <laughs> it was like three days after they announced that they were going to be accepted. So there's probably not even stuff. like a decal on the, yeah, not yet. Nothing. And in in the two stores, so Big Big Camera did it in two big stores in their big areas in Tokyo, right? The most famous stores or the most highly trafficked stores yeah. in Tokyo for their initial test, and the test went well. So then they put it, you know, company wide to every store that Excellent. they have. Excellent. You know, and and there's um there's a company called Recruit who uh, they're connected to about 260,000 stores in Japan. And they made a deal with one of the Japanese exchanges to be able to accept in a POS system accept cryptocurrency namely bitcoin in all of those stores so much opportunity. just so they already have the the pos system like you know whether it's a tablet or whatever it is at each store and all they have to do is just an update to their particular software that now allows them to accept the bitcoin so it's not like they need to receive you know any kind of new machine or anything right. like that it's already with what they already have and now it's just an extra you know thing that they touch and bam now they can accept bitcoin now it's just going to be probably the education to each store on yeah. you know what to do with it and how to you know hit the buttons and stuff yeah that's brilliant Japanese are very meticulous so but but so yeah to answer your question from the beginning you know it you do see it more i mean you understand that you know 56 i think percent the last time i looked of all transaction volume in bitcoin was coming from japanese yen which is huge that's awesome yeah japanese right? is going to be a leader in bitcoin yeah they you know japanese and uh, korean exchanges are, are the majority of all the transactions that are happening right now especially since all the stuff with you know the uh, chinese exchanges and stuff like that so um do, do, the, was, do the BTMs there and mm-hmm. take um, is can you do it both ways like where you put cash in and get cash buy and out? Sell, yeah, so the ones that I that I've had experience with, the ones I've had in my store, and the ones that you know I'm kind of dealing with now, those are all buy and sell. Uh, you can buy and, and sell Bitcoin, but you can only do it at a certain level. So uh, if you have transactions um, up to three hundred thousand yen, which is you know a little less than three thousand U.S. dollars. 
uh, per, per transaction. And you know, you only can do the amount of cash that's actually in the machine in the float at the time. So say, you know, it's full up with cash and it only holds 300,000 yen worth of cash. And I wanted to sell, you know, my Bitcoin, it'll only allow me to sell that 300,000. And if I wanted to do a second transaction, (laughs) there's no cash, there's no cash in it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so where are they typically located then? Because Um, they have to be somewhere safe if they're holding the cash. So is it in a store or it's mostly in store or bar or someplace where there's Bitcoin meetups and things like that. And, you know, people that um, are a little, you know, uh, involved or, or more involved in, into the, you know, um, Tokyo meetups for Bitcoin. That'd and that be a good stuff. place to have so, yeah. yeah. So there was um, the original very first machine that ever got uh, put in Japan. I believe it was in 2012, maybe, or something. Uh, maybe 2013. It was in a place uh, called the Pink Cow in Rapungi. It's like cow. It's like the main party district of central Tokyo kind of stuff. It's right where, like, near where the Tokyo Tower is and those yeah. kind of things. And uh, that's where all the Bitcoin, most of the Bitcoin meetups were in the beginning. And they still have Bitcoin meetups there, but they had the first uh, BTM in Japan. And, um, you know, I believe they still, they, theirs got pulled when that BMEX had pulled because it was a BMEX the same as I had. But I think there's a, a, another one deployed to that store. And I know there's three other BTMs in, in the Rapungi area right now huh. with another company that's kind of operating in this gray zone. Kind I, I, I got to make it out. I got to so, make it out to Japan. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm getting another one in my new bar that I'm starting, Cryptic Bar. So yep. I'm going to have an ATM there. BTM, actually. My, my, and, uh, my friend in Germany uh, had, uh, had a, uh, an ATM. Mm. But it, it wasn't two way. It would only take the cash in. It was buy only. Yeah, okay. it was buy Bitcoin only. Yeah. So you had to put the euros in. It got so full because there was so much demand mm. that it didn't run out of Bitcoin. It physically ran out of space to For hold the, the euros yeah. in the thing. So it had to, it had to stop. Yeah, with until the one, they until they unloaded it. With the one that I had, I mean, I was emptying the thing, you know, every three to four weeks because it would get pretty full up, you know, and I was just in a small area with not a lot of traffic, you know, kind of thing. So the the demand is there. So having, you know, BTMs can be, can be a profitable thing. Train stations Um, now in Switzerland too. But the thing that's great about it with uh, the technology that we have and this like kind of airdrop technology and that kind of stuff, right? (laughs) So if say, you know, you get to a point where you have people that are actually selling the Bitcoin and your cash is getting depleted, all of a sudden you send out a a drop or an advertisement saying we're going to drop the rate from, you know, 7% buy to 5% buy or 4% buy. Balance out the machine. Right, and then you know, then people would rush in to get it, and now you you level yourself up with uh, you know with cash again or something. Well, like that, that, so. that's probably why uh, the Japan is treating them like exchanges. Then, mm. yeah, exactly. And, and <laughs> the thing that's cool about that, and it kind of goes to what you were talking about earlier, being able to you know trade on margin that kind of stuff. I mean, the the thing that's profitable about a BTM is that you know the you're they're not they don't care a BTM doesn't care what the rate is, right? They're charging their percentage over spot, whatever that spot rate is based on an, either an average rate of the country or a particular exchange or whatever that is, and then they add a percentage to and what that, is right? that so, percentage usually in Japan? I mean, um, I know it's based on volume. Typically before, it was 8% for buy and sell, um, but more recently, it looks like it's, it's, it's changing a little bit, and now it's like 7% for buy and 10% for sale. Um, why it's that? I, I, I mean, I, I and I don't, I don't begrudge the mm-hmm. operators for having that, that spread because yeah. they need to finance the... You know the expansion of those it's mm. hardware yeah but that is the number one thing that is preventing bitcoin currently from mm. competing against uh, western union and things like that because it's so expensive to be able to buy it from well if you add it on the in and you add it on the out you're you're actually more than western union yeah so we shouldn't criticize western union's price if mm. you're if you're using btm that's true right but that'll come down mm. i mean the, it'll stabilize it'll get more competitive yeah it's the, 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 the competition is what changes that right so the more people that get involved in this they see the profit margins that are happening with current machines 
and they get involved and then more and people do it. And then all of a sudden you have all these machines in one geographical area and people have all this choice. Well, then they got to, you know, compete now and, okay, yep. I'm going to drop my rate to 5%. I'm dropping mine to four. I'm dropping mine to three. And then eventually it comes down and it becomes, you know, a lot cheaper for people. Well, and it'll be volume purchase. too. The machines yeah. will be, the machines but you'll will have be the volume. So it'll be okay. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, right now at that percentage level and the volume that they have, they kind of have to have it at a higher rate to yeah. be able to operate. Right. They because do. there's more competition and there's more volume than, you know, bringing the price down as far as percentage of Bitcoin, but you have the traffic and you have the volume, then you don't care because you're still making your profit margin. So then right? Western Union has a couple more years left in them. You Probably <laughs> at least one, right? <laughs> Probably two. Uh, we'll see. But it's coming. Yeah. One question I forgot to ask, and it's a question I always ask everybody when I talk to them about Bitcoin is, do you use Bitcoin in your daily life? And what was your last transaction? Okay. Is that something that you'd be willing to share? For me, my last purchase was uh, to buy this flight, business class, via cheapair.com uh, to come to London. That was my last purchase. Yeah. How about yourself? Uh, uh, for me, I definitely use it in, in my daily life. Okay. Um, I've created my own little mini SWIFT network. Um, and my last transaction was a cross-border transaction to pay somebody for some work they were doing. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Uh, and, and I did it on the weekend. Yeah. When banks are closed. Exactly. So they so were happy they received it very quickly. You wouldn't be able to pay them until the following Monday if you didn't have this. That's right. That's awesome. That's perfect. Thank you. All right. So um, well, uh, I think that, that that's good to go. I really appreciate you know you taking the time to come and talk yeah, to us about Bitcoin. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Brian. Yeah, and I hope that we get a chance to follow up and talk again. And I really look forward to uh, checking out what Globe Tech is doing and, and everything else that you got going on. So, All right, well, thanks for the oh, time. Really, really, really appreciate you. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, brother. Well, thanks again for tuning in to the Bitcoin.com podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. And if you want to receive notifications about future podcasts, be sure to sign up at Bitcoin.com slash podcast. I'd love to hear from you about what you thought about today's podcast, as well as any suggestions you have about what to cover in future episodes and with who. Please send an email to brian at bitcoin.com. All right, well, have an awesome day, and we'll see you next time. Take care. You've been listening to the Bitcoin.com podcast. Visit bitcoin.com today, the number one place in the world to learn about Bitcoin. Open your first wallet, buy your first Satoshis, and get involved in the Bitcoin ecosystem that is changing the world as we know it. 